G'day and welcome back to the Eloquent in the Room podcast. I'm Rose Cooper and no, you did not pass out for a couple of weeks. I am back inside of a week to present part two of my interview with Phoebe Doran about her time in a cult and about her sexual awakening and about some of my stuff too because we do have a very easy rapport and we do get very intimate during the course of the conversation and we do go off on quite a few tangents and I did as I said before spend a lot of time editing this so that I could get as much of it in a a time period that would keep your attention as well as keep you entertained and um, you may notice throughout this particular section of the interview this sound effect is used quite a few times just to denote where I am cutting to a part of the interview where we did go off on a tangent and then we come back again. Look, I just love every part of this conversation and I hope you do too. I look forward to your feedback. I'm not going to check in at the end of this podcast. I'm just going to dive straight into this um, second part of the interview so that you can feel that sense of continuity. I do, however, just want to share one piece of feedback I got this week, which I um, appreciate just so much. Hi, Rose. I just started listening to your most recent episode and felt guilty because I'm probably one of your listeners who should be more responsive. (laughs) Ha ha. I've listened to every episode so far and really appreciate all the perspectives you bring out. I'm not sure I have anything specific to add, just that I really love the work you're doing and would be disappointed if you stopped. And I promise to engage more online. Okay, so that was a pretty nice message to receive. Uh, By the way, just to put it into perspective, the semi-apologetic tone of this feedback is in direct response to how I opened the podcast last time and talked about how suddenly I'm getting some really good quality feedback and engagement due to a successful post on Instagram. So if you didn't listen last time, that's what that's about. I actually know the person who sent it to me. It's not a completely anonymous um, message. It's someone I know from my association with community theatre over the last 20 years. Um, We never worked really closely together, but we did mix in the same circles for a while and we both appreciated each other's work and each other as a person and but we never got to be friends we never really got to be friends so I could really only say this person is an admired acquaintance shall we say and someone that I haven't caught up with for quite a few years because I've been living in Sydney and so this did still come out of left field and the coolest part of the message is this person is a I think late 20s sorry if I've over aged you but I think late 20s sweetheart of a human being who is a man how cool is that I have a a man fan I'm sure I have quite a few man fans but I imagine my audience to be women of most sort of ages and demographics and, you know, I know that everyone's in all parts of the world and all that and you kind of hope men are listening to. So there's proof. (laughs) Um, I would love to hear from more men if you're out there and you have been listening to the podcast consistently or you've just jumped on board the podcast and you are enjoying it, drop me a message. That would be fantastic. Um, I haven't interviewed any other 
male interviewees apart from my son and a friend of mine who is a trans man. I would love to chat to more men, whether they're experts or activists or people who have specific experiences and they want to talk about them. If you go back to a previous episode, um, it's called Goodwill Hunting, which was an article that I'd actually written over 10 years ago about a friend that I lost to suicide. Um, And he was my mentor. He was my friend. And it's recently been Men's Mental Health Awareness Week. So I felt it was really important to bring that up as well. Yeah, I am. this is not a man-free zone by any stretch of the imagination. Um, by virtue of it being a predominantly feminist-based podcast and female empowerment podcast, and yes, queer podcast, it's um, definitely <laughs> hoping to reach men's ears and very supportive of men because how do we all figure this out if not understanding ourselves better to communicate more with the people around us. And yeah, you know, (laughs) I'm just a mumbling wreck at the moment because it has been an intense week. It's my podcast birthday week. It's the first time I've put out two episodes in the same week. week. Seemed like a good idea at the time. also, I've got to get some chores done because it's rental inspection tomorrow so we've got to get this place as neat as a pin rose move it along um my interview with laurie mintz has been pushed back um a little bit more she's got a very busy life she's in demand um as a speaker and therapist and writer whenever we get a chance to talk it's going to be the right time to talk so i have no problem with the fact that um that's being waylaid but i just wanted to let you guys know if you've been looking forward to me talking to the author of becoming cliterate it's on its way probably in a few weeks from now we're talking towards the end of july unless it's pushed back again in the meantime something may pop up between now and then either just a a podcast with just me or another interview that may come out of the woodwork like this fabulous one with Phoebe but um, I'm not on a schedule I'm not on a deadline we're just going to move organically from podcast to podcast and um, I can get stuck into all the other stuff that I want to get stuck into in the visual medium and the music medium and um yeah a year on from launching the podcast i'm starting to get the hang of what directions i'm supposed to be heading in there's an old saying ride the horse in the direction it's going here's me and phoebes so as you're getting older and exploring your sexuality but you're still inside the cult still buying it Do you remember at which point in your life where the cracks started to show, you started to see the strings, what you had grown up with, it started to become more and more obvious to you that it was an idea that was being given to you that was not based in growing up as a healthy human being? Yes. Two main things. One was having sex. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what caused it. But one day I realized I actually don't feel guilty about having sex before marriage. Mm. I actually don't. I feel guilty because I was taught to feel guilty. I, because 
people say I should feel guilty because I was conditioned to feel guilty. But if I think about it for myself and feel into it on my own, Mm. I actually don't feel guilty about it. I feel fine. Like I have my boundary with sex, which is that I will only have sex with somebody who I feel cares about me. It doesn't have to be like love forever, but like I have to feel that they care about me as a human being. And then that's kind of my boundary for having sex with somebody. And so if I meet that, I feel fine having sex. If I don't meet that, I don't feel good having sex, but Mm. that's my own boundary. But I, that started, like I started learning that. I think just being around people who were not a part of the cult, like once I got working and I had clients and I worked at a gym and I talked to people who weren't part of the cult and they were like, nice. And they seemed like happy. And then I started learning about self-development a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I would read a book on emotions or loving yourself. Mm. And then I, it slowly started to teach me how to think for myself because critical thinking was something not only that I was not taught, but it was actively discouraged. Mm. Like literally heaven forbid you think for yourself because you should never trust your own thoughts. It's what God thinks that matters, not what you think and not what you want for your life. Like there was none of that. It was like, what's God's plan for your life? So I was, I lived my whole twenties, like so confused asking for signs and not understanding what God wants for me. And then yeah, just as I kind of moved out into the world, there was this thing called critical thinking and I slowly started to learn it. And so then when I applied that to sex, that was a big aha moment for me Mm. when I realized, and that was the biggest one because there is a lot of things in the cult that weren't actually biblical. Like it was cult doctrine. It wasn't like you couldn't even make it up in the Bible, like the skirt thing. Mm. Yeah. But this was something that it says in the Bible that sex before marriage is wrong, that it's Mm -hmm. a sin. Like Mm -hmm. it literally says it in the Bible and it was not my experience. It was not how I felt. Mm. And so that was just a huge moment for me. And then that's when I started, it's like a thread that I just kept unraveling. And I was like, if this is wrong, and it says it in the Bible, like, what am I missing here? What else is wrong? Mm-hmm. And then I just kept questioning and questioning and questioning from then on. Yeah. So, do, do you recall other things that were cult-centric that weren't in the Bible? Yeah, a ton of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, like even, even the ministers going out two by two, Mm. um, that is how Jesus sent his disciples. But like three chapters later, he recounts it and he's like, Oh, what I said, never mind about that. Cause the Mormons do Um, that as well. Don't they? Mormons go door to door two two by two. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, (laughs) they didn't have a church building. They met in homes, but Jesus just kind of like talked to people everywhere. He didn't even have a church organized church. So what do they have female ministers now or not? They do. They do. They do actually, but it's in a it's in a extreme patriarchy. So the ministers with decision making abilities that affect everybody are all male. Like they're at the top of the hierarchy. 
Mm. And like the minister that if you're a male minister that you started like the day before, this actually happened to a friend of mine. Wow. You have authority over the female minister that's been a minister for 35 years. Yeah. So it's totally a page. It's far mm. more of a patriarchy than like our world is a patriarchy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that the male members of your cult, presuming you had male friends, did they suffer with the same sense of guilt about sex or was there less pressure on boys to be chaste, given that I'm sure they, they weren't told how short their shorts could be or or whatever, or their behaviour around girls? Yeah. Were, were, were they taught um, to respect girls or, you know? Depends who you talk to, maybe. Yeah. Um, boys were also taught not to have sex before marriage, mm-hmm. but they were not shamed if they did. Uh-huh. The same way. So yeah. I have a lot of friends who got caught having sex mm. with somebody and they had to kind of do penance, whatever that looked like. But the boy was never talked to. Yeah. So the fault was definitely usually presumed on the woman. Yeah, it was a total double standard. Mm. But I do know know, some guys that left the cult and then they just like went crazy with sex because they were taught for so long that they shouldn't have sex before marriage. So it it did affect them as well, but... Mm, I'm sure. A different way. Mm. But definitely the responsibility was always on the woman. Mm. Like for sure. Yeah. Because women are Jezebels. We've got very da- very dangerous skin. <laughs> Our skin is so different. Yes. And apparently. people have to, yeah, people have to be really wary of uh, which bits of skin they're they're looked at looking at yeah. at any given time. Mm. Patriarchy. My shoulders mm. just make men go crazy. Yeah. And they just can't control themselves. Yeah. You do apparently. have nice shoulders, but that's you know, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> So when did oh, when did you do you remember the first time you started caring less about what you wore or because even when I was little I was even aware that if I was wearing something that was a little bit light and the wind would catch under it and I'd feel the wind on my skin and stuff I remember feeling that this is uh, some kind of nice thing that I probably am wrong to you know I, I knew there was I, there was a conflict from a very young age about how things felt on my body and my skin and and whatever and you see how adults carry on about when they're wearing something and being called sexy and the inappropriate things that people say to to kids about being sexy and and all this sort of stuff so given that you you know your shoulders were absolutely ballistic in their power over everybody did you have a sense of the first time you went sleeveless (laughs) I don't mean to make this silly. I mean, I'm dead set serious. Like, do you remember feeling any, anything spe- oh, specific yeah, to do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, it happened, it happened little by little. It didn't kind of happen all at once. Mm. And it's something that I still notice myself struggling with sometimes. Like it still is there for me, mm. which makes sense because I mm. had 28 years of conditioning around it. Yeah. But... I don't remember the first time I wore something sleeveless, Mm. but I do remember the first time I wore shorts. Right. And it was honestly, it was only like maybe four years ago. Wow. And I was super nervous. 
I've, it, that makes me really upset. <laughs> like, I'm, like I want to cry. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. So, oh, wow. Keep so, telling me. Oh, yeah. So I was super nervous mm. and I, but I was like, no, I know that this is okay. I know that wearing shorts is actually normal and fine for like most of the population. <laughs> and I went outside and like, nobody looked at me. Nobody even noticed that I wore shorts. Mm. Nobody said anything. The earth did not swallow me up into hell. I was not struck down by lightning. And like nobody even noticed that I was wearing shorts. It was super weird. Yeah. Did you feel nice? And it was very freeing. Yeah. Oh, cool. (laughs) That's so freeing. But like about a year ago... I took my son to an indoor play place Mm -hmm. and I was wearing like a high neck long sleeve shirt and tights, but the shirt was like a little bit short. So you could see like an inch of my belly, literally like just an inch. And I went to the indoor because I wanted to wear something that was comfortable, but that I felt good in because I was like in a good mood that day. Mm. And so I felt good about myself. And then I went there and the whole time I was there, I couldn't stop thinking about, oh, am I tempting that dad over there? Is he turned on by this inch of skin that I'm showing? Like that family over there that's clearly a different religion. Do they think that I should you know, be killed or like go to hell because I'm wearing this scandalous outfit and how are people judging me? Maybe they think that I shouldn't have a kid because I'm dressed too sexy. It was like insane. All these thoughts Mm -hmm. that just bombarded me over this outfit that by anybody's normal standards would be like, they wouldn't even look twice. Mm. How long ago was this? How long ago? Yeah. About a year and a half. Wow. If that. That's, it's interesting, isn't it? The conditioning. It is. Mm. Like it just crops up every now and then. Mm. Like it's not like that for me all the time, but it just comes up every now and then. And it's just, the conditioning is just there (laughs) sometimes more than others. Mm. And it just bombards me. Have you felt, I know when I sort of, started to grow out of the idea that it was my fault you know every every woman is taught that it's their fault if they're sexually attractive it's their fault if if someone you know makes advances or whatever and I remember feeling so angry like when it when all of that um conditioning fell away and all I was left with was anger about the double standard it goes to show that even if it's not taught to you as a religion it's inescapable and the fact that you're like as a grown human being who knows in your own critical thinking can still have this knee-jerk trigger within you that fills your head with all sorts of irrational thoughts. How do you talk yourself off the ledge in those moments? Well, knowing my triggers is a big one. Mm. So when you know what your triggers are and you know what your conditioning has been, when it comes up in your head, you can 
know that it's possible at least that that's what it is Mm. and that it might just be the way you are seeing things because of the way you were conditioned by religion or trauma. Yeah. Like you were saying. Trauma, previous relationship and that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 And one of the ways that I then deal with it is what we were talking about earlier is I bring it up and I make noise and I let my body move however it needs to move. Mm. So I try to get that conditioning out or my anger out and I like vocalize it and I express my anger because being angry at the conditioning that I got growing up is not, it's useful and it's good Mm. to be angry at things like that. Mm. But I don't want to stay there for my whole life. Mm. Anger is somewhere I'm I'm happy to visit and I need to visit sometimes, but I don't want to live there. Mm. And so then I express it and try to get it out. Do you feel like it's part of that grieving process that... Absolutely. Mm. It's the language that we use as well. I can't remember where I saw it or whatever, but it was just a meme, general meme. Um, If you do dot, 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 or where dot, 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 I won't be responsible. And I'm pretty sure it was a woman who posted it about things that she found sexy or attractive or whatever, but used that language. If you do this, if you kiss me such and such, if you kiss me on the chin, whatever it was, I don't even know what it was, I can't be held responsible. And I like flew in, (laughs) crash landed in that comment section and I'm like, you know, there was debris and I'm like, what did you just say? (laughs) I won't be held responsible. Isn't this the exact phrase that we are trying to jettison from our language that we all have our own agency? And even if it's just a joke, And even if it's where women, so we're allowed to have these jokes more. This is what the mentality is. It's our turn to joke in a sexist way now. It's, you know, men have been making sexist comments. I'm like, there's that and there's dishing up the same thing that's been dished up to us. I don't think, I don't think you want to dish the exact same language back to, to people because it's, in my mind, reinforcing the same notion that we're trying to change. So you know how being attracted to somebody is different than like having chemistry with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Like it feels different. Like Mm. I can be attracted to Thor. Mm. Okay. But like, it doesn't mean I have chemistry with Thor. Do you mean a Hemsworth? Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When you have chemistry with somebody do you Mm. think it always goes both ways that's an interesting question yeah Mm. I would love to go around and ask everybody that I felt sexual (laughs) sexual chemistry with and being like did you that was weird but did you feel that too or am I the only one like I've always wanted to know yeah I I know what you mean and um as because uh, I was in a in a marriage from or a relationship from eighteen to thirty five, and that in and of itself um, is like being 
you, you screed out of a lot of stuff that's happening in the social sphere and all this sort of stuff. I was housewife, mother, all of this sort of stuff. So I led a blinkered life to a certain degree and also was dominated. He had a more dominant personality. Um, so my self-esteem was always kept kept low and I found that I would meet other people while I was married, whether it was friends of his, friends of mine that I'd meet um, playing tennis or, or whatever, and you'd sit down with those people and within five minutes you think, I feel so comfortable with you. You seem to get me. We seem to have this eye contact thing going on right now where I feel seen by you, you feel seen by me, and I'm... I just feel good about myself because of this respect and admiration I see in your eyes while we talk and I and you give it back. And I used to see this and it, to me in a way it's like living in a cult in that marriage because I clearly wasn't being looked at with the same level of admiration that had more to do with what was going on between my ears rather than between my legs and and who I am and whether or not they I was funny or whether or not I was smart or all of these things. So I would interpret that as chemistry and I would sometimes interpret that as an emotional connection and I would get a crush on that person within a very short time because I was kind of starved for acknowledgement that wasn't coming from a person that was insecure and dictated to me who I was. Wow, I'm getting really deep here because it's a really interesting question that you've posed. And that's from an innocent perspective. But when I was older and I was out and going to bars and and my prerequisite was chemistry. And for me, chemistry was a sense of feeling acknowledged and respected as well as, you know, I didn't really feel like I was a piece of meat so much or that they were a piece of meat so much, but the transaction of picking someone up and going home with them or bringing them home was very, very straightforward. It was always about the sex, but you still wanted to have sex with someone who you thought you might click with in bed based on this interesting concept of chemistry. And I think, I don't know if men perceive chemistry in the same way in those moments as well, like the the sex is on, she thinks I'm hot. I don't know if they actually think we've got chemistry. <laughs> they just think, oh, she thinks I'm this and they're more subjective about it. So so why, what made you ask the question and how do you feel it in your own mind? That's interesting. Oh, it's just something I've always wondered Mm. It's just a burning question that will probably never be answered. Mm. But if I ever have had the chance to ask, the chemistry has always gone both ways. Mm. But yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that you interpreted it because they were meeting a need that wasn't being met. Mm. You interpreted that as chemistry. Like it is when you kind of automatically get along with somebody and you feel really comfortable with them right away, like that is chemistry. It's Mm. like friend chemistry. Mm. And I love that. I definitely feel that with lots of people. 
And it's amazing. Like I just, I really love that. Mm. But it's different than sexual chemistry for me. Mm. But it's interesting that you interpreted that as sexual chemistry. I think both. I think I definitely, the older I get, um, sexual chemistry and intellectual chemistry are pretty much the same thing for me because I'm so uh, sexually wired that I, I, I just, I, I need to feel a certain kind of attraction for someone to want to experience something with them. Mm-hmm. And I always know the sex is always going to be good because I like having a human being with me while I'm experiencing sexual <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. So they're not, they're not a, it's, it's not a physical chemistry so much. It has been and it can be, but I think I need this validation in my head. I don't want to, somewhere along the line, I think I must have subconsciously told myself I don't want to be a life support system for a vagina. Um, I want people to be eye-gazing with me and being tender or communicating, having sexy talk or whatever it is, establishing a connection. And I don't know, for me it was like if you're not smart enough to want that, then I don't have any sexual chemistry with you. I don't. I agree in that I don't think I can have sexual chemistry with somebody if I don't have other chemistry with them, like as a human being. But I have human being chemistry with lots of people that I don't have physical sexual chemistry with. Mm. So the one does not always lead to the other for me personally. Mm. Yeah, whereas I blur. Yeah, I'm very blurry. Do you feel sexual chemistry with all your friends then? Um, no. I don't have sexual chemistry with all my friends. But in certain circumstances, certain moods or whatever, it's like some people said, oh, they're, I, you know, they're friend of mine, they're close to me. I couldn't have sex with them. I can completely and utterly couldn't 100% rule it out. I might 99% rule it out, but I would never have 100% rule out having an intimate experience with someone based on the fact that you care about them and and you love them and stuff I still have a a heart connection to my sexuality and it's more so as I get older so I'm I'm even less inclined to date now and all that sort of stuff because I'm like that could be bothered to me the the experience of sex is potentially so awesome I know what that's like. Um, I don't see the point in just having it in a frivolous way. Yes. Yeah. I've done frivolous a lot and that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm, I'm lazy. I'm getting lazy in my you old just, age. You just, you just want a really good meal now. You've yeah. had enough granola bars and you've had enough fast food that now you're like, if it's not, a really delicious meal. It's not worth eating. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Go hard or go home. Before you're just like, I'm hungry. We're not, we're not told enough about the sex emotional connection, which brings up the cathartic thing that we were talking about before, something I forgot to add mm-hmm. because of the stirring up of the oxytocin of 
sex and the outpouring of the catharsis of sound and the feeling of letting go and having all this stuff, it's very common for not just women but for people to inadvertently start crying after sex. I I have actually cried after masturbating. There was a time there where I was like for about six months or like every time I had an orgasm, didn't matter how it was, I would cry. And it was menopause and all sorts of stuff. It's wow. it's 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 our hormones and, wow. and stuff. I'd feel this uh serotonin drop or whatever. I'd feel I literally would feel after the orgasm a plummeting of emotional mood and sadness overwhelm me and thinking that's loneliness, you know, that's what we're told, that's what I'm feeling. And I've thought, no, it's just hormones, it's chemicals, it's, it's, it's a physical release yeah. of possibly past grief. I'm possibly still processing that, this, that, the other thing, and it's coming up when I'm having an orgasm or whatever, but, but we don't treat ourselves gently enough around what the orgasm can bring up in us. And that's, for me, why I need safer people to have sex with because I'm like, not only let's enjoy it, but let's, right. let's, let's express our humanity and let's, uh, let's go crazy and make noise. <laughs> so it was kind of the same feeling every time you masturbated for six months? Like it was the yeah, same it was, feeling? Of, yeah, it was a, definitely kind of a period breathe. of my life because I, I remember, yeah, I remember reading about the phenomenon because I was noticing that particularly, like I say, I think it's, could could be to do with menopause, but by the time I had broken up with my second husband at 52, I calculated that the longest I'd gone without sex since I was 16 was six weeks. So two marriages and a bunch of just casual sex and, and whatever. And I realised that um, my body had developed its own rhythm around its own sexual needs based on just always idling on that that energy for a while. After we broke up, I was on Tinder and, and whatever, and I was lining up casual sex. And after the first two or three years, um, it stopped the need to keep up with my libido, started to drop with just getting used to the fact that I wasn't having sex on a regular schedule than I'd had been for the previous 16 years of the marriage that broken up. But when I would have sex, I would still have this stuff within me that would come up during partnered sex because it's more magnified, because you're combining sexual energy, you're combining hormones and, and breath and, and presence and, and, all the tactile components and the foreign hands, someone else's hands on your body, all of these things that make sexual expression between two people feel more powerful than it does when you masturbate if you're only masturbating a certain way. And I would find myself quite overwhelmed (laughs) and apologising to people going, I didn't realise how much I needed that. I didn't realise how much I needed sex. I didn't realise how much I needed to be touched. I didn't realise how much I needed to be kissed. And it would manifest itself in crying. And I would think, oh, I I felt, when it first started happening, I felt really self-conscious and embarrassed about it. But then I 
processed it and figured it out. I'm like, of course you're going to feel that way. I've been literally starved. I'd been starved for all the oxytocin that I wasn't getting. And I was then getting a rush of it because I'd have sex every three months instead of every three weeks or every six months, you know, and it dragged out further and further. I haven't had sex now for 18 months. Mm-hmm. And I don't know I don't know what will happen if and when I do have sex with someone else whenever, <laughs> whether, whether it's going to result in a complete nervous breakdown. I don't know. Um, I don't think so. I think I've got a handle on it all. And if I did get emotional, I'd be like really happy about it, I think. I think I'd be happy to embrace that beautiful sadness that, that I was, re, you know, reconnecting with a part of my humanity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I've definitely cried after orgasms, mm. but maybe for slightly different reasons. Like it sounds like you're definitely processing a lot of your sexuality in the last few years, if I'm not mistaken, and like mm. what sexuality means to you and what you really want right now and what you don't want. And yep. you're processing a lot of that. So that can come out when you're masturbating because you're connecting to your sexuality and to yourself in a really deep way. Mm. And for me, that's the times that I have cried. Like I remember a few times crying because I was masturbating and really connecting deeply to myself and saying like, I am safe. Like this is safe. It's safe to be in my body. It's safe to experience pleasure because again, I'm trying to like rewire the sexuality is dangerous mm-hmm. conditioning from what I, that I got growing up and saying like, this is beautiful. This is my body, it's my pleasure, it's safe. And just being able to experience that was so beautiful that I cried from the power and the beauty of it, but then also grieving that that was lost to me for so many years Mm. and sometimes crying because I was angry because I didn't have that. And I didn't know that. And I was taught something so different. Yeah. So was your partner from any kind of religious background? Um, yes. He, his um, grandpa was a minister, mm-hmm. but a very liberal one. So him and, <laughs> him and I have had some arguments as to what Christianity actually means because I was raised at one end of the spectrum and he was raised at the total opposite end. Mm. And he's like, this is what most Christians think. And I'm like, no, 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 this is what most (laughs) Christians think. But the reality is probably somewhere in the middle. Mm. Um, But yeah, he wasn't really conditioned at all with that kind of stuff because his grandpa really just brought it back to like being a good person, love, forgiveness, you know, like the real basics and how to live that out in a day-to-day life and God is love. What remains for you with your own philosophical and religious outlook? What what remains as your belief system if you if you still have one? I don't really know. And I feel a lot of peace with that. Mm. I would call myself agnostic. Mm. I definitely don't believe in God 
the way I was taught about God. Mm. But I have heard enough stories that convince me that there's something else going on that I can't just see with my eyes, but I don't know what it is. Mm. And something like I mentioned earlier that the fear of hell was a really big sticking point for me. It was the biggest Mm. sticking point in me leaving, just totally leaving the cult. And what really triggered me to leave is that I realized that if they were right, like that was always the question in my head. What if they're right? If that is the case, then heaven would be hell. I don't want to spend eternity with a God like the one I was taught. That Mm. would be hell. Mm. And hell would be hell. Mm. And so I could choose between hell and hell. Mm. And so the only thing I have and know for sure is this life. Mm. And I can make this life a heaven or a hell. That's my choice. Mm. So that's kind of... I kind of live as if God doesn't exist, but, or an afterlife, but I sort of believe that there is something after death. Mm. Does that all make sense? Yeah, well, you're not living your life based around what happens to you after you die, except that, like most people, you want to be a good person and experience what life has to offer you. I... I was trying to rack my brain before this podcast, trying to think, was there anything in the doctrine? I can't say that there's anything in the doctrine that I would want to keep. Mm. Um, And again, it's hard to separate the religion from my upbringing. Like, which is which? What was my parents and what was religion? Like, it was such an all-consuming part of their life that it's hard to separate. Mm. I definitely grew up with a sense of love and security that has been very unshakable. Like, like there's just a part of me that would never stand for being mistreated. Mm. Like, it's just this innate part of me that's like, to allow somebody to hit me or something is just like not, it's just not in my wheelhouse. Mm. I would just be like, are you kidding me? Like I'm out of here. (laughs) So there's kind of this innate feeling of value. I think that came from my parents' love and stability and how much of that was because of religion. Like, I don't know. So the kindness, a sense of kindness. yeah. Yeah. Like I was thinking about why I understand why people are in cults Mm. and really strict religious groups. Like I get it because I think you get three main things from it. And these are things that I miss sometimes, even though now I realize that they are based on total bullshit. Mm. (laughs) Um, I miss them sometimes. I miss the feeling. So the one, the first thing is certainty or security. You know what's what in the world. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. It's black or it's white. If you don't know, you read it in the Bible. You hear it from other people. You end up being in an echo chamber. And so you're always like, right. You know, you know what's what in the world. Mm. 
So you have this real sense of certainty, like you are in the right way. Like you found it, you found the way to heaven and that's great. And you know what you need to do to get there. Mm. You know, you go to church two to three times a week and you wear the right clothes and you say the right things and you believe the right things and then you're going to go to heaven. Mm. So you have this sense of certainty. You don't have to figure anything out for yourself. Right. There's like no gray. Right? Mm. And you get a sense of belonging. Mm. Um, like you belong to this group. Everybody believes and, you know, knows, quote unquote, <laughs> um, the same things. And you can talk about it and you feel this real sense of connection with other people that feel the same way that you do. And like the community in the cult that I grew up in was very strong in that you can travel anywhere in the world and meet up with people from that community and they welcome you with open arms and you can stay in their houses. And like, it's this huge community, Mm. except it's based on lies. Like the beliefs are based on lies. And then even the community is based on you having to believe those things and follow the rules. And if like, it's not, you don't belong because you're you, right? You belong because of your beliefs. And if you no longer have those beliefs, you no longer belong to the community. Mm. So, um, and then the third thing is meaning Mm. like you, you, you don't have to struggle. I, I have struggled so much since I've left to be, to like, think like, what is the meaning of life? And I feel like I need a meaning of life (laughs) because growing up I was taught like everything has eternal meaning Mm. and you're fighting this epic battle against Satan and God and and God like God is on your side or he's not and there's like all everything has like huge meaning to it and then then you're like what's the fucking meaning of anything Mm. (laughs) like when you leave right so to give up certainty and security, belonging and meaning is a lot to give up to mm. leave something like that. Mm. So I get why a lot of people choose to be blind to the things that don't make sense. They choose to just believe and not use their common sense because otherwise they have to give those things up. And those are like core human needs. Yeah. I feel there's a an allegorical thing to do with patriarchy and old-fashioned views of marriage is like we are or we were in previous generations young women aspire to get married to be picked by someone to get married to have children to look after everybody and then somewhere along the line the children would grow up the uh, the couple barely spoke to each other anymore and women are suddenly going, questioning their very existence. What is the meaning of life? I thought that everything about my life would make more sense just being in this marriage, being in a relationship, being a mother and all that. And there was this entire generation that were prescribed Valium and 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 had emotional breakdowns or broke up marriages and wanted to... Um, 
you know, change and 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 have a career and, and get married again or, or do all these things because they were in the cult of the patriarchy within the confines of marriage and women as the homemaker and all that. I remember when I was a young person having children, I felt the most purposeful and the most useful in my life when I was young, breastfeeding, young babies. I didn't have to think about anything else at all no negative thought in my day because my job description was completely and utterly give love, make milk, make the, feed them, stop them from dying. Do you know? It was it was a great thing. It was, and I look back at it and I think that's wonderful to feel that. But at the same time, isn't that kind of sad that my entire sense of who I was was wrapped wrapped up around um, the meaning of that in my life to the point that I didn't really have a backup plan for when they grew up and have a career and have my own interests and stuff. I had to start from scratch. I mean, I think that's really interesting. And I wonder, is that because how much of that do you think was messaging that you got that that was your job description or that was what you were supposed to feel purposeful or fulfilled doing and how much of it is because it really was naturally kind of who you were at the time and that was it genuinely was fulfilling to you because nowadays like I don't think personally I don't think it's sad if somebody feels fulfilled being a housewife or Um, is like super happy just having kids and that like is really fulfilling for her. I think that's wonderful. I just don't think we're all made that way. Yeah, a lot of it was just having no ambition before having children. So um, 100% I felt, like I say, I did feel fulfilled and I did feel like my life had meaning. And I, when I say I look back as that being a bit sad, it wasn't because... Um, that was in any way a wasted thought or wasted energy or or a wrong way to feel. Had my time over again, I would still be the same kind of mother that I was then. But I had no sense of who I was beyond that so that when they did grow up and you get people having emptiness syndrome and, and feeling um, totally. in, indoctrinated or institutionalised, it's a it's a very disenfranchising feeling to go, oh, I've got to actually have a, a career. I, I didn't even think of that. I just thought I I was pushed out of the nest to have children and become a mother, and and it's I traverse these generational uh, concepts. I'm right on the cusp of the boom generation and the and the Gen X, and it's like nothing was instilled in me as a young person that my future held anything but motherhood and, and wifehood and house and household um, and family. So to see these things fall away as I got older was very um, disorienting, disillusioning and, and stuff because I'm like, yeah. now what? Now what? I'm, I have a family but they've got their own lives, you know. But luckily for me I discovered, yeah, luckily for me I discovered that I do have a creative streak and that I am interested in um, doing things that fulfill me in that way. And they are as fulfilling as everything else has been in my life 
relationships, motherhood, sex, all that sort of stuff. It's um, it's all a part of the same spectrum that that just eating life, just being being who you are and expressing who you are and being who you are in life and feeling authentic about it. Did and all you that say stuff. eating life? Yeah, eating life. I'd love to lay claim to that as I a phrase, that. but a friend of a friend of mine, um, I think it was her email address, do you eat life at hotmail.com. So <laughs> she's a wonderful thinker. Yeah, I don't lose sleep over who I am and whether or not I'm I belong on this earth. <laughs> and whether or not there's a purpose there, I feel I feel extremely worthy now, but that definitely was not the case. I never felt worthy. I love what I heard once that I don't know is the most creative place to be. Yeah. It's it's a really scary and uncertain and uncomfortable place to be. We mm-hmm. don't usually really like it, but when you're in that place of God, I don't even know what to believe anymore. I don't know who I am. I don't know. Then it's like, well, who do you want to be? What do you want for your life? What do you want the meaning of your life to be? And then you get to choose, which is terrifying, but (laughs) it's also powerful and beautiful Mm. that you then get to decide. Yeah. Similar to the Zen. I think it's Zen. Might be Taoism, but um, the phrase "not knowing is most intimate." Right. Mm. And the first time I heard it, I thought, at that point where you're like, "That makes a lot of sense," but I'm not sure I fully grasp it. I had to really sit with it for a while. But I did always. I think it's because of you know childhood trauma. You do have a bit of a control need need to be in control and 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 know what outcomes are going to be and um i think the world at the moment with the pandemic and everything we're all having to embrace this great not knowing what could be around the corner and yeah. and thinking actually human connection is what we've all learnt right now let's let's hope that we hang on to that when things go back to normal and and all the sense of you know more awareness of racial injustice and we're having a a a sharp learning curve where everybody's actually stopping and connecting and listening and turning away from what people are trying to tell them is the truth and thinking for themselves a bit more (laughs) And um, which, yes, which does bring up that cult, that uh, that uh, the the latest cult, and um, yeah, the language of the truth and all this sort of stuff. I heard it coming out of people's mouths that I did not expect, and you would question yeah. it with them, and they would say things like, "Well, um, I've learned to think for myself," and the further you get into this cult, you realize these are the phrases that. They're told to trot out at all at all times. It's all about the truth. It's all about not being told what to think. And then when you were talking about growing up in the cult, you had these stock phrases that were given you about the things in the Bible that you didn't understand. I'm like, where is a where is a people? Where is a human race? Do we stop continually falling for the same 
dog and pony act or <laughs> I think it's the same things that I mentioned before mm. certainty belonging meaning mm. yeah um but you're right cults or cult-like behavior or thoughts mindset can happen anywhere so mm. yes be wary of stock answers so do you, do you still have a relationship with your parents oh yeah mm. for sure um we love each other a lot we just don't talk about anything belief wise um my brother and I joke that my parents paint their house pink so they don't have to see the pink elephant that's always in the room mm. um they don't actually paint their house pink but that's mm. kind of our joke but mm. my my whole family's that way like we just don't talk about it yeah the fact that I am no longer part of it because they all are like, was it really hard for them when you left? Did they go through their own grief and whatnot over it? I know that it was really hard for my mom mm. and my dad. I don't know if it was for my sisters. Uh, my brother's a lot more liberal, so mm. him and I have talked about stuff. And um, But I know that it continues to be really hard for my mom, mm. especially. Like, I can just see it in her a lot more. I mean, they think I'm going to hell. Mm. And they think that my children are going to hell. Mm. So that's a lot. Yeah. But I'm really grateful that they respect, they don't approve of or understand my choices, but they respect that I'm an adult and can make adult decisions Mm. for myself and my life and my family. And so they're just really respectful of that. And I'm really grateful. Like when I left, I didn't know. I didn't know what would happen. Like I know other people in the cult that left and, you know, their parents never talked to them again. Mm. Or I didn't know if my sisters would let me see my nieces and nephews again. Mm. Like I didn't know what would happen. So it was really scary, but turned out really well. So Mm. I'm so grateful that that's the case. I really don't mind that we don't talk about it so much. Mm. Like, I don't need to be besties with my parents. Yeah. Really. Like we just have this understanding that we love each other a lot. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Like end of story, I guess, you know, and we each are living our own life. Respecting, respecting boundaries. Well, I think hopefully they know that, you know, that what, drives them is a protective instinct just as they hopefully know that you know that they that you understand that you know that that neither of you are at cross purposes when it comes to loving each other uh I suppose I've been in a bit of a bubble being outside religion in Australia but you do notice things from the outside looking in at America and what is referred to as the Bible Belt and hear about specific chapters like the Westboro Baptist Church and and particular organisations that are against abortion and, and all of this sort of stuff that are causing a lot of trouble and the idea of the purity ring and purity culture and and I'm seeing young girls emerge from it now and jump onto Instagram and be sex positive from the point of they've literally just woken up to something that other people who weren't in a religion 
didn't even didn't even think of there was no shame there and I'm thinking I can't it's really hard for me to grasp that there are still 16 to 25 year olds in this world that do have this idea that you know sex before marriage is wrong and, and all that sort of stuff I just thought but we live in we live in a world where Cardi B exists and you know, like we we've meet the media is saturated with sex to such a degree that um how can you still feel that it's um it's that much of a taboo but that's the magic I guess the magic of the cult-like atmosphere of of religion and and bringing kids up with not letting them do things but doing somehow doing it in a way that they don't feel like they're being they're not conscious they're being deprived like were you you weren't conscious that you were being deprived of anything as a young person were you Mm. I I don't have an issue with people feeling like, you know, I want to wait until I'm married to have sex. Like to me, that's fine if it's a choice. Yeah. If it's a choice. Yeah. If it's a choice and they're <laughs> educated and they are not shamed about having sex or not having sex and they think about it and they're like, you know, I really think I want to wait. Yeah. Like I have a friend like that and she's like, you know, I kind of, I just want to wait till I'm married Mm. And it's like, great. But it's not a hell-based belief, or it is. Is it a hell-based thing or just a, no, I want it to mean something? No. Yeah. Mm. And so that's fine. But, like, if it's a choice, it's fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm just big on choice. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Like, um, I have three kids and the eldest one has his first girlfriend at 22, and she was 20, and that's the woman he married. And they are yeah. they are the perfect couple, and he just never saw the point in asking anyone out or pursuing any kind of relationship unless he really, really liked that person. He, and it, this was completely an intellectual decision, and he grew, right. grew up with me, not forcing sex down his throat, but in an atmosphere where, because I used to write for a magazine that was um, a sexuality magazine, and, and, like, it was definitely, and maybe because it was, something that he knew was okay, that it was easier for him to just intellectualise it rather than he had nothing to rebel against. He definitely had nothing to rebel against. So, yeah. Yeah, so I just, yeah, no, the the beauty of that, of the actual conscious thought, you know, knowing what you want, how you want your heart to be in a relationship and the respect to yourself and the respect to the other person that is implicit by making that decision. I was like kind of jealous for a while in in my head. I was like, "Wow, you really thought that through." I didn't give it. Any, <laughs> I didn't give it any thought at all. I was like, "What? What is sex? Oh, sex will make boys like me." That was all the only thought I put into it when I was like fourteen, fifteen, as I was growing up. But he figured out very early on. Well, this is what you've given your children now. Yeah, there was nothing nothing wrong. Definitely nothing wrong with people having sex. That's I guess the only thing that. I raise them with is that sex is definitely not a bad thing or anything to be ashamed of. So particularly from the point of view of how you view a woman and and how she views sex, she is not lesser than for anything that she wants to do with her own body. So that's the other thing I instilled in them. This slut thing, it's not a thing, okay? (laughs) 
That's a double standard. Yeah. Phoebes, you are wonderful. Um, you're such a lovely person. And um, I think I love what you're doing with your podcast. So I'm going to be only too happy to tell people about it. Very happy to have an excuse to talk to you for another two hours. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much. Big hug. Bye. <laughs> Bye. There you go. How cool was that? What a lovely person. I think we will chat again sometime in the future. In the meantime, do check out her podcast, Sexuality After. And there's a big conversation where she interviews me coming up in October. But there's some great episodes up there at the moment. Now it's time for me to swing on the end of a broom, as my mum used to say. Yes, sir.